Anyway, we are in the book of Philippians. We've been there a long time. Uh, We're in chapter 1. We are going to try and get through verses 19 through 30 this morning. Just as a brief recap, you remember that the Apostle Paul is writing from a place of being in custody. He's actually on house arrest, being arrested by the Romans for basically being a troublemaker and for stirring up and inciting the Jewish leaders who were ticked off at Paul because of his proclaiming what they believed was a new and different religion. And the thing is, with the Apostle Paul and with all of us, is that every situation in life, the good ones and the bad ones, and especially the bad ones, the tough ones, the hard ones, we can view them purely from a circumstantial level, or we can view them from a heavenly perspective. And if you view the the thrust of your life, the bulk of your life, at that circumstantial plane, you are going to be basically a very low-energy, depressive uh, individual, frustrated individual, lacking joy, and all that goes with that. And so this morning, that obviously is going to be the thrust of my message here, is to look at life much more from a heavenly vantage point than from uh, an earthly vantage point. Easier said than done, as you'll find out as I go along. Last Tuesday, just last Tuesday morning, we were in a different environment. We were in Southern California, where they were experiencing oppressive heat, uh, even by their standards. And uh, Tuesday morning, I got in the car to go make my daily run for breakfast at uh, the bakery. And my eight-year-old grandson came along with me for the ride. And he came along only for the ride because, you see, my little grandson, Ale, has numerous physical challenges that are primarily dietary-related, but they have, obviously, chromosomal uh, foundation behind it. He is bonafide celiac disease, which means his intestines don't digest properly, and certain foods can uh, irritate to the point of being a life-threatening situation if you ignore such things. But it's not just an inconvenience. You say, okay, so you're gluten-free. It's the big fad today. It's what every, not everybody, a lot of people, blows my mind, are actually choosing to do when they don't have to. It's like, okay, that means giving up pasta, giving up bread, basically giving up everything that's good that even derives in any way, shape, or form from flour. And I know what a pain it is because for a time there, several months ago, I thought I might be gluten intolerant, especially when this came up with my grandson genetically. And uh, so I went gluten-free for about six weeks. It was awful. I'm no longer gluten-free. I'm old enough, I'll die, but I will die a happy man if I am. So that's all right. But my poor little grandson, now try and imagine being a, a, a little boy of eight years old, and he's had it now for several years. He's not simply off gluten. He is bonafide, I mean heinously allergic to dairy, everything dairy, to grapes, to corn, to almonds, to, that's about it, okay? When you think of everything that's derived from all of those, even when you're gluten-free, a lot of the substitutes used are like corn flour and those, so I mean, this, so think of it, think of all the treats and all the goodies that you're aware of in your life, forget it, they are off-limits. 
to this little boy. But even, and his, his mom and dad, my daughter and son-in-law, are so rigorous in protecting him, and they are eating the same way that he has to eat. But even in doing that, my little grandson is still wrecked with skin eruptions that ooze constantly to where he walks around, and he doesn't say anything. You just happen to notice he's carrying an ice pack that he just puts on his arms because it brings relief. One night I went in to tell them their bedtime stories as they, they like me to do and I like doing. And he's laying there and I notice he's got this little ice pack and it seems to come up in the antecubital fossa. Google that one. That's this area of your arm because it brings relief. So my heart is just gripped by what this little eight-year-old, and it's been, like I said, for several years, is going through. And so I started talking to him about what he can do with this challenge in his life. And I talked to him at his level about viewing this particular situation circumstantially or viewing it from a heavenly vantage point. And I brought into the picture a woman that you're probably familiar with by the name of Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata. And I told him about how she had uh, succumbed to a diving injury when she was a teenager, I believe, and ended up in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic and has been there the rest of her life. And I, I talked about how people can become angry. And it's very understandable that they would at now the limitations and all the hassles and everything that, that whatever your challenge happens to bring. I said, but instead of doing that, she chose to not live circumstantially, but to live with a heavenly vantage point and to use her infirmity to the glory of God. And if you're at all familiar with Johnny's Erickson now for all these many years, she's been a powerhouse for Christ. The Lord's plan for each person of faith is to grow up into the faith, which means increasingly working on changing our outlooks and our attitudes to experience life, like I say, from that heavenly vantage point. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth. Now, let me quickly add a disclaimer here. This does not mean that we are to become, we are supposed to somehow will ourselves into this place of being oblivious to the realities of living here. You may have heard the phrase referring to somebody uh, as being so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. There's a lot of truth to that. That's not what Paul means, though. Rather, it means living with a view of the interpretations of life's events as informed by the wisdom and the counsel of God. It means not living at the circumstantial level. So what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal and where it comes down practically. I've already alluded to it several times already. People who live their lives at the circumstantial level will either be lifeless people, if you understand what I mean by that, lifeless people tending towards this daily experience of being basically depressed all the time or or they will be people who appear to be at any given point who appear to be full of life but who experience life as a chronic pattern of highs 
and lows. Both kinds of people end up hopeless. So let me try and explain or illustrate these two types of people who might look quite different to the observer, at least from the outside, but both of whom live life driven by their circumstances. There's my little pointer here. There's my pointer. I'm going to need that in a minute. The first circumstance-driven person, the first type that I'm talking to, attempts to ride, if I can use this metaphor, ride the waves of life. But their perception is, is that they always are missing the wave. There'll be people who live in a fairly constant and routine and expected state of being bummed out most of the time. Again, just last week, just a few days ago, we were standing on a beach in Southern California, and it's a beach where surfers are at. And out there as I'm watching, because, you know, if I had a bucket list, I don't, but if I had a bucket list, surfing would be one of them. I've always wanted to try surfing. I've done body surfing, but, you know, it's not the same thing at all. So I always watch these guys with fascination, and they're out there trying to catch a wave. And I understand the principle of catching a wave from body surfing because it's the same. You can't just stand there and think that the wave's going to, like, pick you up and magically carry you along. You have to stand there looking back and timing the wave as it comes in to get it just as it's breaking at the right point, and then you start swimming like crazy, and if you hit it right, it's now effortless, and the wave just holds you there, and you're in for a nice ride, even if it's rather short-lived, at least in Southern California. We're not talking about the bonsai pipeline in Hawaii, okay? As I was watching, I think I saw, and this was for maybe an hour, not constantly fixed on them, but just kind of watching out there all the time because you're looking out there anyway. I think I saw two surfers, two surfers who actually caught the wave the right one wet one time each in that whole time. So you got all these other surfers out there and you got people on boogie boards and they're all doing this stuff and the wave just passes them by and they sit there bobbing in the water as it does so. And they go back out a little ways to try and rejudge where that wave's going to break and catch it so that they can they can enjoy the ride. Well, what happens is what begins as fun becomes a frustrating bore. You've been out there for how long now? And the Southern California water is, although it was pretty temperate for Southern Cal, uh, surprising to me, was felt as cold the first time we experienced it as our waters here in Maine. But it depends on the time of year. So they're out there doing this, and they've gone on for all this time, and they haven't caught a single wave. And so they start focusing on the thrill of catching the wave to get that ride. But it comes and it goes. And so what's happening is they are so fixed on the circumstance. They are so fixed on not catching the wave and trying to catch the wave that they grow oblivious to all the surroundings, the beauty of the blue skies, the amazing nature. I mean, beaches just fascinate me anyway. They're so just pretty. And the warmth of the sun and the sound of the waves waves crashing and then always the little dance of the piping plovers as they play tag with the surf as it comes in. Oh, wasn't that poetic? (laughs) In other words, all the wonderful things surrounding them, 
become invisible because they are so engulfed by the single circumstance of catching the wave, being so focused on it, that they miss the best of the whole situation. I'm using this as a parable of life now. The second type of person who lives life circumstantially, though, is like the surfer who, unlike the first person, is very successful at catching the wave. Huh? Well, no, I didn't, I didn't state that wrong. So you said the first is bummed because they keep missing the big wave, and the second is bummed because they keep catching it? That's exactly what I'm saying. You see, the first person loses heart because they rarely, if ever, get to realize the high, the feel-good of the circumstance. The second person routinely gets to feel it, but the success and the thrill of any circumstance, that is, any of the things that bring the high or the excitement or the feel-good at the moment, has a very brief lifespan, no matter what it is. And when that lifespan is over, in the words of B.B. King, the thrill is gone. The thrill is gone. And they are compelled then to go in search of other circumstances that brings them a commensurate or greater level of feel-good. Or what happens is they start a downward spiral. Now, cue the graph, if you would. I hope this clarifies things with my thanks to Pastor Matt. This would have taken me eight and a half years to put together. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Okay, this line here and this line here represents a relative normal life experience, meaning even keeled, not that there aren't highs and there aren't lows, but basically all as you go through life, things are even keeled. In other words, that's a healthy, normal life experience, okay? Now, the first person that I was talking to, the one who just never catches the wave and is so fixed on that that it takes them downward, they are the people who tend to who tend to just stay. Remember, here's normal and healthy. They tend to, tend to experience life at this below normal level of energy and feel good and everything else, or basically walk around mildly, if not severely, even depressed. All right. The second person, again, the second type of surfer who gets tired of their success because, remember, everything, every feel-good situation has a lifespan that is short-lived. So they go surfing, they catch the wave. Woohoo, man, they had a great day surfing. But after the great day of surfing is over, guess what? The high fades, and boom, they start downward because their life is filled with crud and just normal stuff of life and everything else. So they go down. So what do they do? They look for another life circumstance that's going to give them feel good and give them meaning and to give them a boost. And they find something. It might be paintballing now all of a sudden they're into. And boom, they get another boost way above here, and they're riding high on that. But that, too, again, is short-lived, and they come down even further. And then they find another little momentary good-feeling thing, and they're up above, and then boom, they're down, and then they're up with a new experience and down. And you see... The pattern here is that this keeps getting deeper and deeper. Forget this. Pastor Matt blew that. (laughs) The net result for both kinds of people 
is that they are hopeless and they are helpless. They lose out on any sense eventually of hopefulness. And the reason for that is this, because that thing, that episode, that event, that activity of life, that circumstance, whatever it is, that which was hoped would bring meaning and satisfaction and joy fades into one more failure in finding peace and meaning and contentment. And this, you see, is mankind's plight. And it's a plight that is designed by God, intended to frustrate mankind. Why? Because God's mean and vindictive and He enjoys seeing people hurting and in sorrow and hopeless? Quite the opposite. God intends this to frustrate mankind, hoping to drive mankind to the very author of life. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 10, verse 10, we read, that Jesus came, the author of life, to give life, capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E, meaning life in the fullest sense. He came to give life and to give it abundantly. This is why Paul, later in this book of Philippians in chapter 4, is going to write saying, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Oh, that's an amazing statement. And that is a statement, true confessions, that identifies a gargantuan failing in my life. In my life. And that gets discouraging. And it should be discouraging. So here's the thing. If you ever wonder about your personal level of Christian maturity... This is a great yardstick. See, we tend to measure ourselves, if we're at all concerned about it even, we tend to measure our spirituality or our Christian maturity comparing it to somebody else. And we usually make sure we pick someone that we know, "Eh, you know what, we're kind of heads and above them. That's a bad yardstick. Don't compare yourself to someone else. Just ask yourself if you can make the statement that Paul made. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And then see if it passes the straight face test. (laughs) Paul wasn't thrilled about his current life circumstances. But Paul understood that his life was not given to him for his personal fulfillment or for his personal gratification. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, saying, Do you not know that your very body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Boy, what a contrary message to the world that one is. For you have been bought with a price. That's why we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And therefore, because of that, we owe God our very lives, every breath, and we should use our bodies to glorify Him. Paul lived with a view of the future where he knows there's an eternal hope. And it's that very hope that he was living for. 
Nobody can cope well with living in a fallen world without this hope. Not even Jesus. Ooh, Jesus was God. That sounds like heresy. Hang on. We let the Scriptures be our authority. And we let the Scriptures interpret Scripture. But think of this. Jesus endured his life here on earth. And he endured all of his disappointments and all of his crushing agonies by living his circumstances on earth. How? With an eternal view of the final outcome. And we know this is the case, and I'm not overstating it, because the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, speaking of Jesus, says this, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even Jesus coped with the circumstances by not fixing on the circumstances, but for the eternal hope that laid before him. If it's good enough for God... I think it's good enough for us. But you see, for the person without a relationship with Christ, there can be no future hope. There can be no future hope. There cannot be any joy set before them. So the only joy there is is what they can manage to conjure up through various pursuits, which at best are only momentary, as I said. Let me put that graph up there again. At the end of the day, when the joy of that circumstance flees, they are left with a deepening dissatisfaction. And that's what this was supposed to, uh, was supposed to illustrate. They get the high, then boom. They get the high, but look what happens. Boom, it's even lower than it was. They get the high, and boom, it's lower still, and it keeps on going. And why is that? Again, because what they thought was the answer to what is actually a soul-deep longing, they realize it isn't. And so they have now one less opportunity to find something that's going to give them that meaning, that satisfaction, and that contentment. And there is nothing outside of Christ that will do that. And so every time they get an experience and they get the high and they realize that it's fleeting, their depression actually gets lower and lower. And this explains my opinion why we see some of the most successful, wealthiest, famous have everything earth has to offer, individuals end up taking their own lives. For what it's worth. As we read the Apostle Paul, his life is even more remarkable than perhaps that for which we give him credit. And our thoughts may run along the lines like this, though. Here's the risk. Well, okay, yeah, I get it that Paul has his act together, but that's why he's the Apostle. Paul. That's why he's in Scripture. That's why God used him to write nine books, at least, of the New Testament. But you see, this isn't recorded for us to highlight Paul as if he were some kind of a, a, a super-duper extraordinary Christian. Rather, it is recorded for the Philippians in the context instruction 
but it's written for our instruction to understand that every Christ follower's call is exactly the same as Saul of Tarsus. In verse 19 through 21, which is where we pick up, this really gets quite deep. Paul writes, I know that this, and he's referring to his incarceration and the whole circumstance surrounding all of this at this point in his life, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, a misreading of this verse is easy to do. And a misreading of this verse might have us think, okay, all right, so now I get it. The reason that Paul can be so upbeat in these cruddy circumstances is because the Lord has already let him know that he's going to be released from his confinement. That would be the understood view of verse 19. Until you get to verse 20. What's verse 20 say? Paul says, for context, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So verse 19 is interpreted for us by the Apostle Paul in verse 20. He says that he is confident of his deliverance. But Paul's view of deliverance in this situation doesn't mean, does not mean, that he will necessarily regain his earthly freedom ever. And the pleasure that that would bring. Deliverance here, in the Greek, is the word soteria. The cognate, meaning the the base word from which that is derived, is the S in the word ichthus. Now, if you don't know what ichthus is, in Greek, ichthus means fish. But it's actually an acronym. What you have is Yesu, okay, yod ki uh, theta, upsilon, sigma. You have Yesu, Christo, theu, weu, soter. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Savior, the S, soter. That's the word Paul uses for deliverance. It means salvation. And while it can mean deliverance in that earthly kind of sense. Deliverance from jail, deliverance from from enemy, deliverance from oppressors, whatever it is. Paul's use of it, and I think this is true, though I'm not 100% certain from what I checked, and Ben was there to witness it. Paul always uses the word to mean salvation, not just earthly deliverance from inconvenience and hassle. So my point in emphasizing this is that Paul has something much bigger in mind than merely freedom from chains, than merely having the hassle and the pain and everything else of his circumstance alleviated. However it plays out, 
gaining earthly freedom or not. Paul stresses, I will emerge faithful to the call of God on my life. If he gets released, outstanding, great. But that's not the big issue. The big issue is that whether in freedom or in bondage, he will honor the name of Jesus regardless. In verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Beginning with the little word for there shows that this is the informing idea of Paul's hope for deliverance. The reason for Paul's very existence is Christ. Remember, every Christ follower, as I already read, has been bought with a price, and our life is not ours. Now let's think about this in terms of some stuff that's in the news, unfortunately, lately, and I believe will continue, namely the martyrdom of God's faithful. I presume that many of you have seen the photos of the journalists in orange jumpsuits with their ISIS captors standing at the ready to do what they do. Trying to be a little temperate here. I wonder if anyone else ever tries to imagine themselves in that situation, wondering what you would do or what you would say if that was you in that orange jumpsuit. What would you do? What would you you think? What would you say, if anything, at such a moment? Well, you see, under the perverse torture of Nero, which he, and that guy was warped. He used to use Christians, impaling them on poles and setting them afire alive, having them around his patio as ambiance lights for his parties. That was wonderful Nero. You see, the torture of God's people is certainly nothing new. And what finally turned the populace's heart against Nero was that they noted that the Christians die well. That's what finally turned them against their wonderful emperor. The way the Christians died. Paul was at peace with living on for more years on earth And he was at peace with forfeiting his life in the cause of Christ with equal, I would argue, even greater fervor. So in verses 22 to 24, Paul has a personal, soul-deep level, uh, soul-deep dilemma that he has to come to grips with. Verses 22 to 24, again, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh... This will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. What's Paul's personal preference? 
<laughs> if Paul is given the choice, Paul, forget everything else. It's your choice. You want to continue to live on and have your life the way it's been going and you know what's laid out for you, sort of. I mean, you've got enough experience with that. Or to die and go home and be with me, what is it? His choice is, take me home, Lord. And it's not because he's depressed. It's not because he's suicidal. It's not because he's being tortured. Not at this time, anyway. His first choice is to die because he gets to be with Jesus, the one who is the reason that he gets up and he takes a breath every morning and he exhales and he sees how he can serve Christ that day in that moment. And that, sports fans, is the difference between a lip service kind of faith and real faith. His second choice is to, yep, I'll continue to live another day and the day after that and the day after that. But even here, again, the difference is that he doesn't say, well, yeah, he's, he'll, you know, he'll go ahead and live on because his Disney vacation is coming up. And gosh, he wouldn't want to miss that. Not because it's winter and the Caribbean cruise has been scheduled. It's not because the kids are finally out of the house and now it's finally time for me. If Paul was thinking about himself first and foremost, he'd say, Lord, take me up now. But Paul's life is not his own. Not since that fateful day when he was a persecutor of God's people on his way to Damascus. And he had a little meeting with Jesus. And everything changed. His first choice would be self-serving. His second choice is not for his benefit, but for the benefit of his beloved friends at Philippi. But in the long run, for the benefit of his being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. I don't know. I don't know. We're not told. If Paul knew from the very beginning of this, that the Lord had it for him to stay around for the sake of the churches. But he lets on here that he knows that at least now and at this time and in this situation, that the Lord's pleasure is for him to continue on here for the benefit of the Philippian church and all the other churches. He is a good pastor. Verse 27 then shifts gears. It shifts gears with the whole thrust and the focus of this. Because now the focus is on Paul, the good pastor, asking the Philippians for a favor. And I'm softening that. It's really not asking a favor. It's giving them a command. Verse 27. He says, look, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, 
I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, look, don't, don't put on your, your Sunday best and get everything together because you know I'm coming. I want you to live your life in such a manner worthy of the gospel that whether I never come to see you again or whether I come to see you tomorrow, these are what you are striving for together in a unity of the Spirit. I'm giving you my life, and here's what I expect in return. I'm not sure that in today's culture that this wouldn't go down sideways and that the pastor might be accused of being a legalist or a pulpit bully or abusing his authority as a pastor. How dare you make a demand on us? (laughs) Paul has no qualms, though, saying, now here's what I expect from you. Live in such a way that your philosophy of life is revealed in your living of life. Or more simply, that your faith can actually be seen, not just heard, but that your faith can be seen by others. A Christ follower, after all, is one where orthodoxy is revealed in orthopraxy. Google it. No, Jesus said the same thing without using big words. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, that they may see your good works and what? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. James writes the same thing in chapter 2 of that book. He says it bluntly. From the contemporary English version, James writes, My friends, what good is it to say that you have faith when you don't do anything to show that you really do have faith? Amen. Can that kind of faith save you? Faith that doesn't lead us to do good deeds is all alone and dead. Paul wants to know that his investment of his life into the Philippians in this particular situation will not be in vain. And he's willing to do anything and everything, including putting his life on the line in very real ways for their sake. But look, here's what I demand. (laughs) But his demand continues in verse 27. Uh, I just read 27, sorry, in verse 28. They are not to be alarmed by their opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but a sign of salvation for you. And that, too, is from God. Your lives must be devoted to a unity of purpose in standing for Christ's purposes, not retreating, not shrinking back, not ever softening the message, not accommodating other opinions or views, and not compromising the clear truths of God's whole revelation. And, in verse 28, not being frightened of the enemies of the cross. Now, this doesn't impact us 
a great deal here in North America right now. But it is, Im- it is impacting our brothers and sisters around the world. This past weekend, uh, Mary Collar was at uh, a conference and got to meet Miriam Ibrahim. You might remember, we prayed for Miriam Ibrahim a while back and all. She had the death sentence on her head in the Middle East because she would not renounce her faith in Jesus Christ. She was to be executed. And amazingly, somehow, the Lord gained her release. We think of Pastor Saeed, who as we speak again now for, what, over two years, in an Iranian prison, for preaching Jesus and for refusing to recant that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. These words mean a lot more to other Christians around the world than we here in the U.S. of A. Christians' unwavering courage, you see, is a sign to the enemy of their defeat. And while I honestly don't fully understand this, I go back again to the Neronian persecution, the persecution under Nero, where the Christians died well. The Christians died well. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Again, I am I am just as candid as I can be with you about this. I'm not preaching at you. I am preaching the truth of God's word. And I am preaching with some passion here because I am annoyed with me that after all of these years in all of my innumerable life experiences of the power of God, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, that I am still so, so driven by the circumstantial view of life And I wish it were different. (laughs) Or do I? And therein lies the problem. To be so fully taken by Jesus, not to be confused by Paul's title as the Apostle, as I said. But Paul is an exemplar of what every single Christ follower is to be like, how focused our lives are supposed to be. And what I fear is that because of the blessings of God over the decades to us here in this country, instead of becoming more powerhouses for Jesus, we become flabby, we become lazy and we become engulfed with ourselves much more so than for him.
But that is something that each one of us have to go before the Lord with and about. This isn't a drive-by guilting. This is, thus saith the Lord, and I believe the day of fire, so to speak, of proving who we are and what we are is coming to our lands very, very soon for what it's worth. say, dang, preacher, that's not a very good sales pitch. And if you're here and you are not a follower of Christ, (laughs) I would understand you're going, wow, yeah, I don't need this. No, actually, it's the one thing you do need. Because like it or not, the crap is going to hit the fan, and it is already. And without that future reality and without that future hope that even God, when he walked this earth, had to look to, and that had to be his driving passion and influence, without that, you are going to end up in a Christless eternity. And apart from that, you are going to continue to be even more miserable than you are now. I say that in all love. You've got a lethal cancer, and there's only one cure, and his name is Jesus. Take him or leave him, but leave him at your own peril. Let me have you stand. Our pastoral intern, Ben, is going to close us out in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you, God, uh, for this message, this timely message. May we be a light to everyone in our circle of influence. And above all, may everything we do glorify you. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.